Good day and welcome to the Stomp It podcast. This is where I, a beginner podcaster, attempt to learn something that's useful for us skiers. In this video, I once again talk to Sam Naney and I ask him about how to get fitter for ski mountaineering or skiing in general, which I've done once before. What's different this time is that we look at uh, a lab test I did after three months since the last talk where I tried to get fitter get a bigger endurance base. So we look at that uh, lab test that's a bit more fun to do on YouTube obviously than listening to it but um, I hope you find it interesting even if you just listen to it. You can check it later on YouTube you can find it quickly with the timestamps or the chapters at the bottom. What could be important to mention for this podcast is that if you would actually attempt to do the training schedule that Sam suggested for me, it might be a bit too hard for uh, the average human. I think it could be a little bit too hard for me. That is, you know, decently fit, I guess. Um, yeah, so enjoy this conversation with Sam Naney. Good day and welcome back to the show, Sam. Thanks, Jens. Good to see you again. Yeah, it's been now uh, quite exactly three months since we spoke uh, last time back in uh, June. Yeah, yeah. The bulk of the summer has gone by. Hopefully lots of adventuring in the mountains since then. Yeah, it happened kind of quickly, but it's okay, I guess. Uh, (laughs) Since last time, for you who didn't listen to the last podcast... Uh, we talked a fair bit about how to get fit for mountain sports like ski mountaineering, but it, it's also transferable to yeah, other mountain sports like just going hiking, for example. And um, if I would summarize kind of what we talked about, uh, was that Sam told me that I need to have a plan as a number one, which I failed on quite a lot. I set a little goal for myself to spend at least three hours on just under my aerobic threshold uh, per week. That went much better than that sometimes, sometimes less. Partially because I had a bad plan. And then two was 90% of the training should be within your aerobic zone. Um, And then three was build a foundation of strength. Something I'm usually on from August until winter starts. But this year, I don't know. I didn't do that. And number four, sharpen the knife by increasing speed and power and use some selective high-intensity training. Um, do you remember that's what we were talking about? Yeah, I remember it well. Yeah, no, I think those those all, fortunately, they're still relevant today. Nothing's changed in the last three months. Oh, lucky, lucky, man. <laughs> and um, I set a little goal for myself to make it more exciting to... Do endurance sports uh, something I've uh, been really bad at my entire life since I, I'm not bad at, I just haven't been that interested in it until I discovered its massive health benefit, especially on energy and general well-being, that I wanted to do a lab test to see if uh, my aerobic threshold would be within 10% from my lactic threshold. And it was not. So I was quite disappointed. <laughs> yeah, but it's also good. I think, you know, when you look at those those lab results, um, 
you know, that that idea of the 10 percent margin between the two is is really, you know, it, it is a useful indicator of a highly tuned aerobic system. Uh, but not having it doesn't mean that all hope is lost. Right. I mean, it, it what it tells you is that you have a lot of opportunity to get fitter and there is potential there for you to continue to develop and, and get fitter, get stronger and be able to do more in the mountains. So you can you can look at it as as a as a positive upward ramp in front of you that you can take. Yeah, and that's also how I see it. I was really hoping for my lab test to be better than it was, but I was also thrilled how kind of low the aerobic threshold was, um, that there was a lot of room for improvement. Mm -hmm. So I spent a day of disappointment and then changed that into motivation, I think. That's good, Um, yeah. I am curious, one of the questions I'm dying to ask you is um, how much work would someone have to put in to have like kind of an average person's aerobic threshold like I have to push it to 10% um, or within 10, 10% of the lactic threshold? Like how much work does yeah. it take? Uh, you know, it's it's one of those questions where the answer is it depends. Um Shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah I'd, I'd like to tell you, you know, three months, Jens, you do that and you're going to be there. Um, but, you know, it depends on a lot of factors. It depends on on how much time you can put in each day. Uh, and, and then it also depends on how well you recover, because, you know, the, the training volume that you put in is only part of the puzzle. You have to you have to put the training volume in and then your body has to be able to recover from it. Um, in many cases, if not all cases, the uh, the real distinction in terms of developing as an athlete is, is how well you can balance the stress you put on your body through training with recovering really well. Um, and recovering involves, you know, your diet, how well you eat, uh, your sleep. Can you, are you getting enough sleep at night? Are you doing the things for your body after training that support adapting to that training load, such as Mm -hmm. good mobility, and good, um, you know, good, good health habits, you know, staying, staying healthy, not getting sick, uh, minimizing stress and other aspects of your life. So there's all those pieces that come into play in terms of how rapidly your fitness grows. Um, honestly as well, everybody is different. Some people adapt really quickly to training and, and absorb it really well and quickly. Other people, it takes a little bit longer. It's they're for one reason or another, they're, uh, their physiology is perhaps a little bit more resistant to those quick adaptations or uh, just inclined toward other things. And so it takes a little bit more to get you there. Uh, you know, I think from where you're at now, uh, if you gave it, you know, six months of dedicated training, and, and we can talk more specifically about hours per week and things like that, uh, you would see noticeable gains, not only out on the trail and on the skin track, you'd feel different. But if you were to go back in and do a lab test again, you would see improvements in those numbers. Absolutely. Um, hard to say whether that would be within that 10% range, but it would be a lot closer than where it is now. Yeah. And, uh, cause I can imagine that the 10% range is kind of hard to achieve it. That we're talking kind of elite level athletes or, or like very well-trained hobby people like myself. I'm not very well. Yeah. Hobby. 
Yeah, no, and, and it that you know that yeah, exactly. I think that the ten percent idea that uh, that's been developed and and sort of heralded over time as a uh, good representation of aerobic capacity comes from observing athletes at at a high level and and what those margins are for them. And in most cases, those are people who have been doing this for five, ten, fifteen years. They've been building up that fitness and. Not to say that it takes that long to do, but it is just a it's a progressive incremental process. Uh, it, it takes a long time for the body to adapt to be able to train more. And then you go and you train more and then you're able to train more and so on and so forth in this stair step mm -hmm. manner. Um, for people who haven't quite listened or watched the last video, uh, could you briefly explain um, why do you want to have a high aerobic threshold? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Uh, so basically, when we're trying to do any sort of activity that we would consider to be an endurance activity uh, with regard to you know, aerobic fitness, it, we're really talking about anything that's going to last longer than several minutes. Uh, anything less than you know, three to four minutes, we can rely pretty heavily on uh, what we call our anaerobic capacity. That is our ability to put forth a high effort uh, not relying on on oxygen, basically. So there are parts, there are systems in our body that can uh, operate anaerobically, that is, without oxygen. But that's really only in a very short time frame. And, and even in that three to four minute range, there is, an, we have to use oxygen, right? You can't hold your breath for that long. You have to, you know, take in oxygen to be able to fuel. But particularly when we get over four minutes, you know, into, you know, 30 minutes, an hour, and then obviously so on and so forth, it gets even more so. We rely on these systems in our body that uh, utilize oxygen and burn fat as fuel. And that those are part of our aerobic system of energy uh, and, and how we metabolize energy to, to turn it into fuel. So... Essentially, the better we can, the better our bodies can take in oxygen and, and use it uh, and, and therefore burn fat as a fuel, the longer we're to go. And, and in conjunction with that, when, when that system is working really well, when we have a really robust aerobic system, we're also able to be moving faster at those efforts. Uh, and so m most of your listeners can probably remember a time uh, either recently or sometime in the past when they maybe didn't have that uh, strongly developed aerobic system and they would go out and, and try to exercise at a low intensity and, and you have to move pretty slow, all right? I mean, you can't, you can't maintain an aerobic effort, you know, keep a low heart rate and move very fast. Uh, but, but also perhaps some of your listeners are now at the point where they have a good aerobic system and they can move at a pretty good clip. You can move uphill, you know, fast hiking or even running and still maintain an aerobic heart rate because you develop what's known as economy. Just like in a car, you can use less fuel to go farther and, and, and faster. So that's what we're trying to achieve with developing an aerobic, uh, a good aerobic system, a high aerobic threshold. So we can work, we can, we can go faster, we can do more work uh, while still relying on the same fuel composition. Yeah, and that's where I put a, a little goal for myself for the coming winter. Um, and it's starting to look doable. Uh, and it's just to do, 
a thousand meters of ski touring within two hours uh, in the at the aerobic mm. threshold, uh, which I find important, just so I don't need to recover too much and can shred it uh, good and then do it again the next day. Um, yeah. And on Sunday, yeah. so two days ago, um, what was that? October 10th. Uh, we had gotten some snow like a week ago and I got to do my first little mountaineering thing for the season or since the 4,000 meter project back in June. Um, did a 1,200 vert and it felt really easy. And for the first half, I think we were doing about 550 vertical meters per hour at 130 to 136 beats per minute, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So a bit under and I was like, damn, I'm uh, kind of uh, at my goal there, or slightly above it. But obviously with much less gear, the ski gear weighs quite a lot, so it would be harder uh, to yeah. do on snow. But I was like, yeah, there's hope for this goal for this winter. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and, and that's, it's a really good point that you made there as well, that uh, you can you can see how you're getting toward your goal with, with movement on your feet and being able to attain a certain vertical gain per hour. But recognizing that when you want to do that uh, ski touring, you need to adapt to the additional loads that ski touring requires. You've got, you know, you have you know, one and a half kilos on each foot, basically, that you're having to drive uphill. And you've got a pack on and, and you've got resistance of the snow. And so there's these different pieces when we think about training and we think about how we need to develop a training plan to prepare you for your specific goal. You have to consider well. Wh- what are the challenges that I'm coming up against, right? So if you're mm-hmm. if you're trail running uphill, that's that's very different in some respects than ski touring uphill. And when you're ski touring, you need to think about those strength components and carrying the weight uh, and the movement. That's a little bit different. Uh, so having all of those, being conscious of what all those pieces are, helps you develop a really good plan. Yeah, I was shocked after uh, I skied my first 4,000 meter peak and I added up all the weights of my usual ski touring equipment, how I made it lighter for the 4,000 meter thing and how I would make it lighter again. And uh, it's 30 kilos of equipment for a normal ski touring day. I think it was like 26 kilos I would bring with me. I don't know how many pounds that is, but like 50. It's a lot of pounds. Yeah, it's a big pack. (laughs) Uh, well, I, that was not just a pack. Uh, well, just yeah, your all your all your gear, yeah, skis and boots and yeah. It, it added up really fast, uh, and that was despite having some uh, uh, super lightweight carbon boots and uh, skis. I didn't really go for the ski more racing kind of stuff, hundred millimeter wide at least, so I can ski well enough uh-huh. on it. But uh, it's quite heavy, those things. Yeah. Yeah, but, especially uh, yeah when you start adding in technical gear, ropes and and uh, protection things like that, it it's difficult to to keep the weight down. Yeah, um, so um, it makes sense that it's kind of hard when you're carrying that much weight, almost an additional f- like forty percent more of my body weight. Um, so that are a couple of reasons for. Uh, I guess I have an audience that's quite freestyle oriented to add some endurance training to um, what they do just so they can ski more often and uh, harder when they do. And so they can absorb yeah. the um, yeah other training you might do like gym training because a lot of freestyle skiers are kind of strong 
so they can take the impacts. But endurance-wise, I don't know uh, that many that are very good at running. Andre Regetli, he is pretty good at running. Uh, but mm-hmm. otherwise than that... Uh, well, and it's... You know, we're starting to see uh, in in the U.S. and in Europe more uh, freestyle skiers start uh, trending more into the backcountry and doing more ski mountaineering type uh, missions and objectives. And so that the fitness element really does come into play in a greater degree. You know, if you're a mm-hmm. if you're a freestyle skier using using lifts or even if you're skiing, you know, heli assisted or, or snowmobile assisted runs. Uh, you still need to be tremendously strong. I mean, being able to freestyle ski and, and free ski in the in big mountains takes a huge amount of strength and technique. Uh, and and in turn, you do have a, a degree of muscular endurance because you're descending, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred meters and <laughs> skiing, you know, pretty significant snow and drops and such. But taking taking that sort of skiing style into the mountains where you're moving under your own power requires that aerobic fitness not only to get you there but also as we talked about in our last podcast for safety i mean mm-hmm. you don't you don't want to power and and then be completely exhausted when you're you know 20 kilometers into the backcountry and and you need to ski a line and get yourself out and if anything were to happen if you don't have a reserve of fitness and strength you're going to be in a lot of trouble so having fitness is as much about maintaining a margin of safety in the mountains as it is about enjoying yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that said, I hope that motivates uh, some of you people listening or watching uh, to work a little bit on the basic endurance uh, for those reasons. And um, I would like uh, now together with you, Sam, to look at my lab test and uh, show everyone how, uh, yeah, I guess... A bit fitter than average person, or a fair bit, uh, but far away from uh, the people you, you usually coach. Yeah. So I'm going to share my screen with you, and we will uh, start looking at the document of your choice. Uh, okay, great. Um, okay. All right, so we're back. Okay, so this is the uh, this is part of your lab test, wherein. Uh, they measured your your lactate, and without getting you know too much in the weeds about about lactate, basically what we use uh, lactate is a product of what we call glycolytic metabolism. So when you're burning uh, sugars or uh, glycogen, which is the body's form of carbohydrate that it stores, uh, one of the things it produces is is lactate, and you know, it used to be that we would think of uh, lactate or lactic acid as, as the thing that makes us tired, right? So when you're running uphill and your legs get really heavy and, and they're burning, like, oh, I'm, I'm full of lactic acid, I'm, I'm getting tired. What we've come to sort of refine our knowledge of, of lactate is to understand that it's actually, can, it's, it's, gonna, it's used as a fuel itself. So it does a higher lactate in your blood does represent uh, a higher level of work because as you work harder, you're having to use more more glycogen, uh, which is uh, which is a more readily available form of fuel, but it it's it's less available than fat is. So it so you're going to fatigue more quickly the more glycogen you use. And again, when you burn glycogen, lactate is one of the things that that sort of comes out of that process. But as we get more aerobically efficient, we can actually use lactate for fuel. 
so it's not not entirely relevant to what we're going to talk about here other than to know that uh, it's it's good for people to understand that lactate isn't in and of itself bad and that in fact uh, really efficient or economical endurance athletes are able to use lactate and and basically reprocess it in their body for fuel and we'll talk a little bit about that when we look at your test here so um, I don't know if you can see my cursor Yes, but I can. This blue line. Okay, so this blue line here, that is your lactate production. So you can see as your, um, and then the the x-axis here is is your speed. So as your speed increases, you're you're gonna you're producing more lactate, and and you can see as as you when you get to a certain point, that lactate production really goes up, right? It's kind of gradual here, and then this. Um, this green line is meant to represent your aerobic threshold. So the lactate, as you can see, is pretty low when it hits that, and that's good, and that, and that makes sense because, as we talked about, your aerobic threshold is really a point at which you're burning a lot of fat. Uh, so you're not burning as much carbohydrate. It's, it's a little less than or around half fat and carbohydrate, so your lactate isn't going to be that high. But as you get beyond, as you start working harder above your lactate, or excuse me, your aerobic threshold, then you're burning more carbs. And so because you're burning more carbs, you're going to see lactate start to rise. This mm -hmm. next line that you hit, this purple line right here, this vertical purple line, that is what's determined as your anaerobic threshold. And what we think about when we define the anaerobic threshold is basically the point at which your ability to reprocess the lactate that you're creating to put it back into the system and burn it again as fuel has reached a set point. So it basically, if you're burning four units of lactate, you're able to reprocess four units of lactate. So it might be a hard effort, but you're not continuing to accumulate that in the blood without using it. And, and again, there are some things that happen as you work harder and harder, wherein your blood starts to get more acidic and that's really what starts to create that fatigue. Your muscles can't work in an acidic environment and, and lactate and, and these other byproducts create that acidity. So we yeah. see this line really, really go upward quickly and that's, you know, that represents you fatiguing. Your heart rate's also climbing. This red line is going steeply upward. So your heart is pumping harder. The lactate is going upward, which means you're burn, burning more and more carbs to maintain the effort. So you're you're quickly on your way to fatiguing here as these lines go upward. Um, so when we look at this and say, okay, well, Jens, where can we improve? How can you like what is going to look like better fitness? There are two things that I look at. One of them you've already mentioned earlier in our call. Uh, it's seeing this green line, this aerobic threshold, get closer to the purple line. So we want and and what that means is that you're able to burn fat. At, at a higher output, right? So if this green line were to move to the right, then maybe it's at 6.6 .6 kilometers an hour instead of 5.7 or 5.8 or so. So you're running faster and still aerobic. That's, that's a clear sign of improvement. You can go faster for the same effort. Um, so we want to see that. Uh, that's, that's, that's really beneficial for an athlete. Uh, is that the automatically other... going to push the lactate th threshold higher as well, the purple line? Not necessarily, no. Um, but it's it's not that that doesn't necessarily make anything uh, bad. And, and and what we see is that the 
while the aerobic threshold has some has some capacity for change, either improvement or, or even uh, uh, lack of improvement, uh, deprovement, uh, the anaerobic threshold tends to stay about in the same place for people. And, and then as you get older, it will lower a bit. Uh, but what we're really interested in is your ability to move faster aerobically. Mm-hmm. And then the other piece that we see is, is as this, as you get fitter, this blue line representing the rising lactate in your blood, what we want to see is it f- be a little flatter across. And then, and the reason for that is that if it's flat or generally flat before it gets to this purple anaerobic threshold, that means that you're not relying as much on carbohydrates at an intensity lower than your anaerobic threshold. So you're able to operate more on fat, still be going faster and faster and faster until you get to that anaerobic threshold. So if you think about uh, what we'd rather see, instead of this this curve upward pretty continuously, what we want to see is more of a flat line. And then when you hit that anaerobic threshold, then it starts to curve upward. And, and we, can, we can talk as well about why that itself is beneficial, especially for, uh, think about like ski mountaineers, uh, particularly uh, competitive ski mountaineers, racers, uh, or other form of, sort of a high intensity uh, racing. You want to be able to uh, basically push the gas and get more power out of your engine at mm-hmm. a certain point. And so you don't, you don't want to not be producing lactate. You just want to wait and be able to produce it later on and up until that point be really economical with fat. So, that, so again, to, just to summarize, the, the two things that I would want to see in terms of improvement in this graph would be your green line moving over to the right a little bit, closer to, mm-hmm. your, to the purple anaerobic threshold. And, and also in conjunction with that, see this blue line of lactate flatten out a little bit early on. And then, and then have its its upward kick, uh, a, you know, a little later. So that would be ideal. That's hopefully what it would look like in six months if I keep at it. It'll definitely look more like that. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I don't want to a little it, bit it, maybe. Not necessarily. You're going to make all the. You're going to. You're not going to make all the changes in six months, but you can definitely make some good changes. Six months is a is a good amount of time if you're able to put in the volume to 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 make the difference. I hope I can be that determined i am a bit of a um, seasonal uh, skier and uh, wintertime workaholic uh, but i'm trying to get some more balance in my life in the winter uh, so that i can ski more and make more videos about skiing because that's what i love doing uh, yeah. i'd also like to say when we did this test i followed the apple athletes uh, protocol uh, which was set at a 10 percent incline on the treadmill mm-hmm making mm-hmm. me oh, it's one of the reasons why the kilometers per hour i'm running maxed out at yeah not even 10 kilometers an hour <laughs> uh, yeah because you're going uphill right yeah it was pretty steep and uh, every dot uh, was a measurement taken three minutes later at every mm-hmm. stage mm-hmm. Um, so um, i have heard uh, some people like to call the top of so zone two training or aerobic threshold some uh define that as uh, where it's a lactate level of two millimole but here they seem to look at one millimole uh are you aware of that and why do people do different do you know yeah so it's there's 
there are a couple different ways to define the aerobic and the anaerobic thresholds. And, and over time, I think in part because you know, there's such a huge data set of people who have been tested, including you know, elite level athletes and recreational level athletes, that you know, we attempt to draw generalizations from those, those data and suggest that, you know, okay, at your aerobic threshold, you know, in general, you should see, you know, this, this amount of lactate and in your anaerobic threshold, you see this much. I think there's some correlation to be had, but I think it's, you know, it's what's as important is to, is to really be looking at kind of sort of all the pieces that are happening here. I will often use that sort of one and a half to two millimoles of lactate as the definition of the aerobic threshold. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, and then for the anaerobic threshold, it's, it, it's more variable. Uh, some athletes, particularly if they're more aerobically inclined, if they're maybe, you know, the sort of, they're the, they're the people who are running the ultra marathons, you know, and, and are very competent as endurance athletes when they're young, they tend to be just naturally disposed toward that. They might have a lower lactate at their anaerobic threshold. Whereas, mm -hmm. uh, an athlete who's more like a power athlete, a sprinter, uh, might have a higher lactate at their anaerobic threshold. And that just, a lot of that is dependent on what's sort of happening naturally in their body just by genetics. Um, what, you know, what may be happening here with your, with your test as to why they defined it and, you know, pretty low with the lactate at your, a, at your aerobic threshold, um, could just be the, you know, the, not having that refinement of being able to utilize fat really well. Um, the other piece could be your ventilatory, you know, one of the things that we, when we're looking at your, uh, at, at your metabolism and, and your economy, when you're, when we're doing these tests is your, is your breath output. So mm -hmm. how rapidly you're breathing and, and what that respiratory rate is. Uh, that's another factor that they may use. Um, so those, you know, those are some different things to consider. I would say that, you know, again, generally speaking, I would look at a little bit of a higher lactate, again, one and a half to two millimoles mm -hmm. uh, for the for the aerobic threshold. But with the anaerobic threshold, it's it's definitely more variable. You know, in the past, we would say, oh, you know, four millimoles, that's your anaerobic threshold. And it really doesn't necessarily apply well to everybody. All right. Yeah. So the way you often work with athletes, then this test would give me an aerobic threshold of maybe 145, slightly higher. But yeah. the gold standard, uh, the gas exchange test where they were measuring my, uh, yeah, the air I'm breathing in and exhaling is a better measurement of where these thresholds are at than the lactate? Or I, I think, think so. It's, it's going to... Yeah, you know, it's going to it's going to be able to take more of those variables in, you know, the your lactate is a representation of how much carbohydrate you're burning. But, it, you know, in, in the case of being able to do a gas exchange test, you're able to be looking more exactly at the inspired oxygen and the expired carbon dioxide, uh, as well as potentially maybe in addition, they are, you know, they are taking lactates as well. So you're getting, you're just getting more information to be able to put, make a, make an accurate representation of those thresholds. All righty. Do you want to show us the, uh, the gas exchange test? Uh, if you have something to say there about my, yeah, let me, let's see here. If I can pull that up. If it's either the document one or 
Document four yeah. shows the fat carb crossover, uh, which occurred at 137 beats per minute, I think. Yeah, we're gonna switch screens here. Okay, you see that? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so this, I mean, we can, we can basically, you know, this is going to be the, you know, what we call the, I mean, they got, so you've got a lot of graphs here, obviously, that basically chart all the different variables. You've got your, your velocity at, at certain outputs. You've got your, um, you know, oxygen versus carbon dioxide, you know, lots of different ways in which we can look at this data that's coming through the gas exchange test. Um, RER is your respiratory exchange ratio. So that's approximate, you know, what that's attempting to measure this, this column right here. Oh, that's my cursor's not getting it. Um, RER is the balance of carbohydrate to fat. Uh, and that's a really useful number for us to look at because we can help determine sort of where that balance point is within, and therefore help us define your aerobic threshold by heart rate. You know, quite honestly, when when I have an athlete take one of these tests, there's a lot of stuff going on here. You know, the grams of carbohydrate per hour that you're burning or the grams of fat per hour that you're burning um, mm -hmm. that, you know, your your VO2, uh, you know, these are they can be interesting. They don't necessarily inform us on a on sort of a ground level about uh, what we need to do in training. Uh, so, you know, a great example of that is, is your VO2. So, so an athlete's VO2 or max VO2 is the maximum amount of oxygen that they can take in to utilize in, uh, for aerobic activity. And it's, it is a, it is a significant factor in terms of an athlete's ability to perform. And, you know, you hear, uh, you hear VO2 numbers and, and, and stories about athletes who have remarkably high VO2s. So Bjorn Daly, who was a, a Norwegian cross-country skier in the 80s and 90s, had a remarkably high VO2. Uh, Killian Journey has a remarkably high VO2. You know, these, uh, they definitely, it definitely plays a factor. But the reason that we don't necessarily emphasize it uh, when we're talking about how to build training is that that VO2 number isn't going to be able to change remarkably uh, over the course of training. It, it's it's a little bit like what you what you have in your genetics is is really kind of what what you're going to have. Training is going to improve it somewhat, but there's a lot more useful information that we can gather from these tests than what your VO2, what your max VO2 is, and that and that's why when we look at them, when we have athletes do these tests, what we really look at is, you know, what it defines as your aerobic threshold. Uh, what's happening with, with lactate if we get that information. And then what can we do with that information to really help you get fitter uh, aerobically? All right. Uh, just pick um, some pieces of the data, uh, mention them briefly, and then maybe we should talk about how to, maybe how, how an example training week could uh, look like for me in order to uh, balance between those four points I summarized from last talk on having a plan do enough aerobic training some strength and uh, 
once yeah. I'm ready for it, um, higher intensity stuff. Okay. Well, so the, uh, you know, what we can look here's, here's a really straightforward thing we can look at. So VT one is known as your, your ventilator, your first ventilatory threshold, ventilatory threshold one. So that's another term for the aerobic threshold. And we can see that the heart rate is 137. And so that's what this test defined as your aerobic threshold. So that, if we had only that number to work with, we could do a tremendous amount of good for your uh, fitness by, by simply saying, okay, Jens, your, your aerobic threshold today with this test is 137. So I want you to go out and do a, an increasing amount of work in whatever format, but ideally in something that looks like the sport you want to do. Like if you're ski touring then, and it's the summertime, then you hike uphill. Uh, or, or actually ski tour if you're able to. Mm -hmm. uh, go out and do a bunch of work and don't go over 137 heart rate. It's as simple as that. And, and, and that's really, uh, if you did that, and again, as we said, if you do that for six months and you try to do more volume each week and, and make sure that you recover periodically so you're not getting too tired over a long period of time, you're going to get fitter. It, it really, like there's no secret recipe there. Um, if we wanted to, if we then wanted to, you know, as, as I said in that, in that previous talk, you know, the kind of sharpen the knife piece, you know, get, mm -hmm. uh, maybe get a little faster, build more muscular endurance. Then we could look to this other category, which is VT2, ventilatory threshold two, or what we would term the anaerobic threshold. Uh, and we would look and look at that heart rate and say, okay, let's take now some training volume at this heart rate and do some interval work where we're improving your ability to use uh, more carbohydrate uh, and, and train the muscles to move at a higher rate uh, while, still perform, you know, while still being right on that threshold of having an aerobic, aerobic component with the workload. So you, know, you can still operate for a fair bit of time at that anaerobic threshold. It's not a 10-minute window. And, you, know, you could operate for up to an hour. And, and so having an ability to be really economical there as well is going to be beneficial for the endurance athlete. Uh, yeah. But again, I, I bring it back to that aerobic threshold as your, uh, as if you draw one piece of information out of tests like this, that's, that's the one to take. Yeah. Sounds good. And here they, they said it chose a high VT2 at 185. It sounded like that's not really what the data said that it, it sounded like the data was lower than that, but it shows 185. So I'd really push myself if I do, yeah, kind of polarized training, either low intensity and then very high. Um, it's interesting because that's, yeah, I mean, when you look at this, it says VT2 185 and then your VO2 peak at one at 200, which, you know, that, I mean, I, yeah, that seems remarkably high for me. So, so basically, you know, VT2, your anaerobic threshold, 185, and then VO2 peak is not your max heart rate. That's the maximum amount. That's the that's the heart rate at at which you're taking in the maximum amount of oxygen. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, it it would be higher than your anaerobic threshold, but it wouldn't be your absolute peak. So that would suggest if if your VO if your peak VO2 is 200, then your max heart rate is even higher than that, which I don't know. Have you ever seen a heart rate above 200? Uh, I was 201 for a short moment during this test. 
<laughs> yeah. So that's, I mean, it, it's a little interesting. I would, I would expect to see your, your VT2 more in the, maybe the 170s and mm-hmm. your VO2 peak be maybe this 185 number. Uh, and then your max, your max heart rate, as you suggest, being around 200 or 201. So that's, it's a little interesting for me, you know, maybe part of it is, uh, you know, me looking at the translation, but, um, but that, yeah, it is a little bit curious. I, uh, again, I would, I would defer back to recognizing that the big, the greatest workload or the greatest benefit that you can get from your work is going to be operating at that lower aerobic effort, uh, to, to build that fitness. Yeah. And one point that I think is interesting if one looks at VT1 in the bottom row where they say fat gram per hour and then I think it's carbohydrates, the CHO uh-huh. grams per hour, it's 39 and 89. There they calculate that it was basically 360 calories per hour uh-huh. from fat and 360, gram, uh, 360 calories per hour uh, from... Um, uh, basically, carbs. that is fifty-fifty carbs and fat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Fat and that's cont- mm-hmm. yeah, and 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 we'll look at that oftentimes as a um, as another way to define the aerobic threshold is is what we'd call the crossover point. So the point at which you're burning about equal amounts fat and carbs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that can be a useful measure too. Yeah, because I, you know done a fair bit of reading in that training for the apple athlete this summer and it's been great fun to learn more about this uh so what else would you take from these tests in order to inform yourself on what i need to train you Uh, know honestly what we've what we've talked about are the main pieces uh that would be yeah it's again it's uh it's fun you know there's it's interesting to be able to do these gas exchange tests and and they give you a tremendous amount of data uh, and, and, and you can, you can spend a lot of time looking through it and, and much of it can be helpful. But again, it really comes down to the, the type of work you need to do is not complicated. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. You go out and you do more volume at your aerobic threshold and you're going to get fitter. <laughs> so easy. I know um, exactly. Oh, now you just have to go do it. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, we'll overlay on the video the rest of the document. You get a a ton of numbers, uh, which yeah. feels good though when you spend uh, three hundred dollars, euro, francs, approximately for one of these tests. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was worth it. It was fun. It was hard work. Um, uh, so if we would suggest, yeah. I am curious how you would suggest me to structure a week where I find enough um, low endurance type training and strength, mostly. That seems to be the most important two pieces. And I also ask you, do, may I do some high, higher intensity sometimes? But I actually, usually accidentally sneak in some uh, zone three training because I hike a little bit too fast every now and then. Yeah, you know, I think uh, there are a couple of pieces that you can think about as being the so-called anchors of a training week. And mm-hmm. and that's that's the way I like to put, put together training is I think about what are the key workouts that I want there to be. And then once those are in place, then you can fill in the spaces in between. Um, so for you, I think it's 
and, and I think you mentioned this, it's really important to have uh, one session a week that is longer duration at, you know, in an aerobic state. So two, three, four hours, uh, you know, obviously starting at a lower point if you haven't, if you haven't done that long before. So if the longest you've ever done is an hour and a half, then maybe your long session for the week should be an hour and a half, an hour 15, hour and a half. As you get more capable, you can increase that number. But there's a significant benefit that comes from a sustained duration in that effort. Um, mm. Your body, you just get into a place where your body is having to utilize fat and, and become trained at doing so. So having a long workout each week is really, really important. The other, I think the other pieces that you mentioned, uh, having strength, uh, as part of your weekly training is really valuable too. typically two days of strength is, is going to be enough for, Sounds for endurance perfect. athletes. Yeah. You don't need but, to be doing much more than that. But I'm not really an endurance athlete. I'm a freestyle skier with a ski touring slash mountaineering interest. <laughs> there you go. Well, that's, that's all right too. So. So straight, you know, and, and that's a good point. Like, you know, there, are, if you're, if you are doing something that's less endurance oriented and more, you know, if, if you're riding, if you're riding lifts and, and mostly skiing in the form of descending, then doing three days a week of strength might be more beneficial because you're really relying on, uh, the strength of, you know, the muscular endurance and, and the power in your muscles to do that work. You do need endurance, right? I mean, you're oftentimes in a descent, you're going for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. So there's, it's not, you know, it's still an endurance activity, but it's, it's heavily muscular. Uh, mm -hmm. And so maybe three days a week of strength would be, would be more beneficial there. For endurance athletes, typically, because the bulk of the benefits are going to come from uh, training at an aerobic effort, two days a week of strength is, is ample. You're going to get mm -hmm. good benefits from that uh, in whatever format you use to, to support your activity. Uh, and you're still going to have enough time and energy during the week to do that aerobic work. Yeah, the, that I can uh, stand behind. That's close to exactly what I'm kind of, before this talk, been wanting to get into. Two times strength, uh, one long thing, and it's going to be easy soon when there's snow. Just go for a uh, ski tour. Or... Go for a ski tour. Yep. a few hours uh, which i love yep. doing on like sundays it's a wonderful thing yep. to do um but the question is should i try to sprinkle in a little bit of like a uh, little morning run before work to get in some more low intensity yeah. exactly so that's that's where that you know so if we think about you know those those quality sessions uh the long day the two strength sessions then you still have you know, at least four other days and maybe even some additional time during those strength session days where you can get some low intensity work done. Mm -hmm. And that's where you can really start to fill it out with as much time as you have available and as much time as your energy allows. So mm -hmm. perhaps here's a, here's an example week, uh, Monday, if you're going to ski tour on Sunday or do a big long day on Sunday, mm -hmm. maybe Monday is off. You don't do anything that day, or maybe you do some stretching, some yoga, some light mobility. It's more of a recovery day. Tuesday, mm -hmm. Tuesday morning, you do strength. And then maybe after strength or sometime later in the afternoon, you go for a 30 minute run or a 45 or minute or an hour bike ride, but it should be aerobic. So you get mm -hmm. some strength and you get a little bit of an aerobic load. And then Wednesday, Thursday can also be days where you do aerobic activity. 
you know, maybe up to an hour uh, or more as you're able to do more volume. Keep the effort at or below that aerobic threshold and go for a run, go for a hike, go biking. But those are days to just start building that volume. Friday, you basically repeat what you did on Tuesday. You do a strength workout in the morning and you do an easy recovery type activity in the afternoon. Uh, just kind of shake out the legs, get a little bit more aerobic load, but it's, but it's really meant to be restorative after that strength workout. Um, Saturday can be a day maybe as you start to build volume. Saturday is a day where you do add some, uh, some form of uh, – maybe it's intensity. Maybe it's something more, uh, more oriented towards speed. Uh, you know, We use things like hill sprints, short 10-second bursts on a steep hill to add some, uh, some power in the muscles, some explosiveness. Mm -hmm. Um, but you could also have it as a day where you just do a little bit more aerobic load, another, you know, hour bike ride, hour hike. And then you get to Sunday again, that's your long day. You know, you're out in the mountains for, for three to four hours. And then you start it all again. Monday is off, you know, and, and maybe do that for three weeks in a row and gradually increase the volume of those aerobic sessions each week. And then in the fourth week, uh, scale all the volume back, take 40% of that volume away and have a really easy week. Let your body recover. Uh, let your mind recover because you'll have been spending a lot of time thinking about training and doing things. So it's nice to have a week where you just relax a little bit and don't worry about it. And then you can start that process over. Do another three week, and maybe you maybe you start adding some different pieces. You change your strength a little bit. Uh, maybe do add a piece of intensity into the week. Uh, but that's that's how we look at training cycles. Is is we build it in blocks. Uh, and focus on the objectives for each block. Make sure that you recover after each block before you start the next one. Yeah, we talked about that uh, in our last podcast. You, you, then we had a really a more basic outline kind of for what I could be doing. Then we said, uh, I was guessing, maybe I do about five, aero uh, five hours of aerobic training every week. And you said, okay, then you do that this week. Next week, increase it with one hour to six the week after that to seven and on the fourth week crank it down with 40 percent and then you start uh again one hour more right than the third week or yeah or there or or, or or maybe at the same yeah the same as the third week so you so it is it does look like that stair step pattern right mm -hmm. each each block you're increasing the load a little bit for the reason being to minimize the risk of um overtraining injury fatigue sickness yeah right? yeah you want to have you know i think that rest week is really is really important again physically and mentally um and then you know overtraining the idea of overtraining is is really um it's really about continuing to apply load and and, and particularly when you start training at higher intensities um, mm -hmm. it's a little bit more difficult to overtrain if you're keeping the intensity really low. Uh, you know, it, it's not impossible, but it's just overtraining really happens when you're applying so much sustained stress on the body through higher intensity or really muscularly difficult tasks and minimizing recovery. So you've got, if, if you have a recipe for overtraining, it might include a lot of high intensity, a lot of total volume and not enough recovery and and over a long period of time we're talking you know weeks or or even a couple of months it's not going to happen in two weeks um it's going to be over a long period of time because it's really a chronic thing uh so it's 
in some cases it's, it's, it's somewhat difficult to overtrain, you know, it, it takes it, t- but, but when it does happen, it's, it's equally difficult to recover from it. Uh, but that's again, yet another reason why we really emphasize this low intensity training is that it's help. It's going to help buffer you against the risk of overtraining. Yeah. Um, and I wrote down a, a beautiful plan, uh, based there on you what go. you said there, Sunday long, Monday, uh, chill basically, which is good. That's exactly what I did yep. this Monday. Uh, and this morning I actually, they had a gym session. It didn't go very well. I don't know what happened, but my lower back was in pain. So I couldn't really complete my workout the way I wanted to and ended uh-huh. up doing some stretches and, uh, was being very gentle, held down the weight. Um, but worryingly painful lower back today, actually. I haven't had uh, some pain for months and now it's back. What uh, kind of strength was it? Was it hurting before you started the workout or did it start hurting during the workout? Uh, it started hurting. I was warming up with some one arm kettlebell swings and already uh-huh. then like on the first swing, I was like, Oh, that feels a little funky there. Um, uh, you, I wonder if you maybe were a little bit fatigued from, from something on Sunday and then, starting with maybe something a little too vigorous and a warm up, just put your back in a, in a bad position. Um, you know, one thing to think about in, with regard specifically to strength is to make sure that you're getting enough core strength in. So, mm-hmm. you know, things like planks and hanging leg raise, kayakers, anything that really forces you to hold your, uh, hold your body in position well with your, with your trunk, with your, your deep abdominal muscles, mm-hmm. those, those are the muscles that support any sort of upright movement, skiing, running, hiking, whatever. Um, and, and really just, you know, living. I mean, unfortunately, you know, you can see me slouching here in my couch, you know, (laughs) so many of us spend much of our day kind of slumped in a chair, Mm -hmm. relying on something to support us and not our own core. Uh, but what happens then is if we don't maintain that good core strength, then, Oftentimes, a load such as a single, uh, you know, a kettlebell swing will will go to our back, and our backs aren't, are, you know, our back, our lower back muscles aren't meant to support that. Uh, that's where our core is supposed to support. So if if our core isn't doing its job, it'll stress those lower back muscles. That that could be what happened is maybe your core just wasn't engaged or or warmed up enough to to support that work. Yeah, it sure seemed uh, that way because uh, I hadn't noticed anything before. But it was really straight away. I just oh, like uh, maybe the first swing. I was like, oh, this is not that good. Um, but I have a um, a birth defect in my spinal spondylosis, so the the pointy bit on uh, one vertebrae is kind of not attached to the vertebrae. Do you mm, know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the those tail pieces you can feel on your spine, they rest on top of each other. And since my one vertebrae is not attached to that column that's kind of resting on each other, it can get pushed in towards my stomach. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, I haven't had much problem with it. I knuckled a jump uh, four years ago, meaning jump too short on the pro line here. And then that triggered some issues there. And since then, it's been a little on and off. Mostly I'm fine because usually I deadlift enough and got a really strong lower back. Uh, but this year I've been... Well, the gyms due to COVID and stuff it was shut yeah. for a really long time, and I fell out of my routine. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been difficult for a lot of folks to maintain strength regimen when gyms haven't been available. 
Yeah, uh, but do more core stuff. Big exclamation mark right here. Note to self, uh, <laughs> which I have started with a little bit more than usual due to or thanks to our talk in June. Um, I thought I should start doing maybe a set of planks every morning uh, when I wake up because I have a routine for years now that I kind of wake up in the morning and then I uh, do a couple of push-ups or pull-ups, something just to wake up or a minimum of a little neck exercise. I have a little bad neck from many crashes and um, then maybe a little meditation to keep the mind switched on and then I write down what I do for the day and have some coffee. And I love my routine. That sounds pretty good. I've just learned that, um, you know, if you already have one habit, it's kind of easy to add, let's say, two sets of planking to failure or something like that or lose form uh, to it. But I haven't quite got into it because I have, um, I don't know, I find it hard to follow a plan. I just do sports because I love it so much and then I can do it for quite a few hours a, a week. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, the plan as much as anything is nice to keep those pieces in that you wouldn't necessarily include. Like you're saying, you know, it's when, when skiing is good and you have the time, it's easy to go ski tour for 20 hours a week. It's, it's more difficult to remember to include the stuff that you don't necessarily want to be doing instead, like strength and, you know, the mobility and things like that. So let's say a skier like me would attempt to do this plan. Um, when I look at this week plan, I'm like, shit, that's pretty hard. Wednesday, or like Tuesday strength and some aerobic training in the afternoon. That's how you meant it, right? For example. And, and, uh, you know, and, that, and that, afternoon, easy. that afternoon aerobic training can be, again, really chill. It could just be like getting out on your bike and going for a spin for 30 or 40 minutes. It doesn't have to be... Um, you know, any sort of really specific effort, you don't need to go and, you know, hike 500 meters or anything like that. It's, no. it's just meant to be a, uh, it's meant to be a way to get a little bit more movement in your body, mm-hmm. uh, in that, in that aerobic zone and sort of flush the legs out after the strength of the morning. Yeah. Um, I think that could be possible. I'm looking forward to try it when the, when my back is good again tomorrow. I hope <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. 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 I had lunch with my physiotherapist. I wanted to see him maybe tomorrow. He said, give it a couple of days and see if you, you know, will feel fine without my interference. Um, That's good advice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe. Uh, the Wednesday, Thursday aerobic training. Uh, you mentioned that's where you can get a little bit more volume in, meaning time in this uh, zone. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's that kind of voluntary 30, 60 minutes or. Yeah. You know, the, I mean, the thing to remember is that our, uh, our aerobic system takes frequent, uh, frequent doses and, and gradually increasing duration to get better. So if you were, if you trained aerobically on Monday or Tuesday, and then you didn't train again until Friday and there's two days in between where you don't do anything, it's going to be really difficult to see gains because there's not enough stress. And basically the way our body improves and the way we get, the way we improve fitness is, is by stressing ourselves. I mean, that's, that's exactly what training is. It's, it's measured stresses on the body frequently enough followed by recovery. So then the body has to adapt to that stress to be stronger, to be more resilient against stress. 
And so if we don't stress our body enough, if it's comfortable with what it's getting, it's not going to try to get, get stronger or fitter. So, so there has to be, there has to be stress. We basically, you know, you have to get tired. Uh, that's, you know, and, and the trick with training, uh, and this is where, you know, as coaches, we really emphasize our role is knowing how tired is enough and, and, and therefore how much is too tired, right? You don't want to get too tired, uh, cause that can risk injury. It can risk, you know, overtraining, but you do need to get somewhat tired. And that's, that's how you improve is by getting tired and then recovering. So um, that is good you bring it up since I'm more familiar with the gym where you don't want to hit the gym every day because to get that, um, what's it called, super effect, you know, that graph where... Super compensation, right. Super, yeah, where you maybe after gym session, three days after, you're going to be stronger than you were three days ago. And if you hit it again, you'll get stronger. Uh, so with the aerobic, uh, training, we have to do it almost every day or is every two days. Okay. Or, I mean, ideally you're doing something almost every day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a good point, you know, with this, with the gym and, and, and resistance training and lifting weights, you don't want to do that every day because the load is much higher. Right. So, so when you go for a run, it's, it's a lower resistance load. Uh, and, and you can, you know, as, as long as you keep the effort, you know, the, the, the aerobic effort appropriate, you can do that pretty frequently. If you go into a gym and you're lifting big weights, that's a tremendous amount of load on those working muscles and they can't do that every day. That's they'll, you know, you just won't have, it's hard to have the capacity to do that. That's why you do have, you know, some people have a legs day and then an upper body day or, you know, or you do only a couple of days a week with rest in between. Um, so it, it, again, it is about knowing basically what is the maximum amount of training that the given system you're working in can absorb and then how much recovery does it need before you can do it again. And, and learning, learning those, um, those timeframes is, is really what training is all about. If you know that you can do a three hour run on Monday or whenever day, Tuesday, and, and you can be recovered again to do another three hour run on Thursday. Great do that. You know, I mean, it's about observing what your recovery requires, you know, elite level, uh, ultra runners do, or, or marathoners do a tremendous amount more volume than us everyday normal people because they, their body can handle it. They can do a lot more and they know how much they can do before they need to recover. So it's, it's very individual. It's about knowing what your capacity is. Yeah. Well, I'm absolutely quite thrilled uh, thrilled to attempt uh, doing something like this. It looks doable on paper and it is a little bit of a, just a normal health goal because I know you feel so freaking good from stamina sport. It's a shame you don't feel as long. I feel like gym work makes you feel good for that day after, but I feel like the stamina I've been doing over the last two years has risen to like the baseline happiness and energy in a way that gym work hasn't quite done in the past for me i think yeah yeah they're both they're both really helpful i think there's a there you know and i i can't you know fully go into it in terms of understanding but uh i i think it's fair to say that there are aspects of sort of your overall well-being and health that are really well tended to with aerobic training uh, resistance training and strength in the gym also offers a lot, but I think that sustained, 
daily or near daily effort at an aerobic level is, is tremendous for your health. Yeah. When done, yeah, it, you know, in moderation, like if you start doing a lot of volume, it might be beneficial from a, a high level performance standpoint, but maybe it does start to get a little, <laughs> a little questionable in terms of just general good health. But I think, uh, just maintaining a good aerobic fitness is, is very good for you. Yeah, it is. Um, from the last podcast, we talked a little bit about you. You inspired me a on doing a bit uh, more uh, planking core stuff uh, that I'm not such a fan of, and single leg stuff. Something I've been doing, but not so much. Uh, so today I, I was doing uh, barbell uh, box or standing up on a box. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure exactly. Yeah. I was enjoying awesome. it. Just looking good. at my knee, like you stayed nice and aligned with my toes there, and uh, felt good. But I didn't do as much as I wanted to do to that sore back today. I'm yeah, aging. we'll take it easy on that. <laughs> uh, would you recommend for people if they would ever want to follow a plan similar to this, or maybe easier if they've trained less, uh, to pre-plan it out ahead in something like Training Peaks or any other software? Yeah. I think it's I think it's really helpful to to lay out a plan in advance. Um, I think starting with what your goal is, you know, and, and having a goal, and it doesn't a goal doesn't have to be a race, a goal doesn't have to be, you know, a mountain that you're climbing. It could be uh, like what you said, you know, I have a goal of of climb, you know, skiing 1,500 meters of of skinning in two hours. That's a great goal, you know. So having so defining it, and then working, you know, and, and, and ideally sort of naming a point you know, or, or time frame somewhere in the future where you'd like to attain that goal. Uh, and then working backward from there and saying, okay, what do I need to do to get to there? Uh, and, and that's how you can start laying out your plan, lay it out first in the, what we call the macro cycle, the, the long-term time frame, and then working down into those smaller chunks, what we call the micro cycle, the, you know, week by week, what are you going to do to get to that goal? But I think having it in advance is, is really, really beneficial. Yeah, um, I believe that to be true. So I'm, I should totally do that on uh, Training Peaks. Try laying out more or less exactly what you've uh, proposed here and see if I can do it for, say, one week at first and then um, see if I can absorb it because occasionally I get a bit too fatigued from what I'm doing and... Um, and that hurts my work productivity, which annoys me. Um, so I'm going so to try doing that. And then I have a question for my own personal thing uh, on the different zones. So I use one of these garments and um, having anchored my zones, the top of um, my lactate threshold and the aerobic. Mm-hmm. Um there are so many different ways of doing it. What I've been reading in the training for the uphill athletes, you know, you can have a recovery zone, then like aerobic, uh, easy. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the next one would be the top of the, that ends at the aerobic threshold. I just don't know how to set it up. Um, yeah. So it makes sense. Should I remove the recovery zone so it starts on zone one as this easy kind of running and then zone two is at the end of the actual zone two as we have defined it at 137 for me personally 
What do you think? Yeah, I, that's how I would do it. You know, I, for my athletes, I'll just give them four zones. Uh, it makes it pretty simple. So, so zone and zone one, you know, and looking at, I'm looking at your zone chart here that you sent me. So zone mm-hmm. one would be about as you put it, 110 to, you know, mid 120s. And that's your recovery zone. That's, you know, just, that could be the zone that you work in after that strength workout. When you do an easy effort afterward, you're in zone mm-hmm. one. Uh, zone two is your, it, that's sort of your focused aerobic training zone. And the top of zone two is your aerobic threshold. And that's where you're going to want to spend the majority of your time is in that zone. Zone three is, is your anaerobic threshold zone. So between aerobic and anaerobic threshold. And, you know, we don't, we don't tend to spend a lot of time in there. There's, it's, uh, if you're going to spend time in zone three, you really want it to be at the upper end of zone three in the form of intensity training, uh, where you're getting sort of focused effort. You're able to be moving faster using more power, uh, and, and up near that anaerobic threshold. So you're, you're getting the benefits of the muscular endurance and of the, uh, of the economy of movement there. And then zone four is, is anything above your anaerobic threshold. And, and zone four is really reserved for, uh, you know, high intensity intervals. If you're wanting to improve your anaerobic capacity, your ability to, to utilize glycogen to go really fast and powerfully. Um, zone four would also be like sprint training, uh, you know, mm-hmm. for, for long for ultra endurance athletes for for ski tours and mountaineers we don't really use zone 4 very much because it's there's not a lot of there's there's some benefit to having an anaerobic capacity for those sports but but those benefits are are not nearly as significant as the aerobic benefits that you can have yeah uh, during our last talk uh, we talked a little bit about uh, like when i'm feeling fit enough to introduce some zone 3 or tempo like four or five minute, uh, like quick hiking uphill, mm-hmm. uh, times a bunch of times. Is that mm-hmm. maybe what you actually suggest for Saturdays if I have the strength to do it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Saturday, yeah, we can... mentioned like hill sprints, and that, yeah, that is more sat- what I'm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You could do it Saturday. You could also try doing it maybe on Thursday. So it, it's it might be a little bit playing it by ear. If you did it on Saturday, then you'll want to you know judge how you feel for Sunday's long day, and maybe you're feeling a bit too much fatigue or exhaustion from Saturday's workout to be able to do a really effective long session. And in that case, you'd want to push that intensity session back to maybe Thursday, so you have a couple of days of um, you know a couple of days between it and the and the long session. You know that's. That's where putting together a training plan is really a, a, it's a little bit of trial and error. You have to you have to see what works for you, what works with your schedule, how well you recover from things, and uh, you know. And as coaches, what we do is really, you know, try to put something out there that we think will be beneficial and work, and, and won't get the athlete too tired, and then have good communication with the athlete, figure out how they're feeling, and and oftentimes like, oh yeah, that didn't work. Okay, let's move it a little bit. Let's change that. Let's tweak this dial and uh, and make things better. Yeah, no, that sounds pretty good. And um, back to the zones quickly. I'm kind of happy about how we uh, changed my zones up because before when I had a a very low kind of recovery zone, like from you know almost resting pulse to 110 beats per minute, it was kind of annoying and it skewed my data. 
it looked like I spent so many hours in that zone because I often track my rock climbing. When you're rock climbing, you stand mm. around for half an hour, then you climb for two minutes or 10 minutes or something like that, and then stand around again. And it'll be nice to maybe yeah. kind of just... Or is it sensible to remove that data kind of from my graphs uh, and stuff? I, I mean, I think... Yeah, I think I think you always want to be, you know, intentional about what you're recording. Um, yeah, I mean, having your monitor going and recording, you know, a two-hour session when you're rock climbing, when only a few minutes, you know, or, or maybe 15 total minutes you're actually climbing, uh, it isn't isn't as relevant uh, because it doesn't it doesn't ha- carry the same weight that an aerobic run might. So yeah, I think it it can still be useful to put just like what we were talking about early on, like put in your training log that you climbed, you know, and maybe which climbs you did, what their grade were, what their grades were, uh, how you felt, but you don't need a heart rate for that. Cause there's not really an aerobic benefit that's coming from that, uh, as much as there is just, you know, the other, the muscular elements, the technique elements of climbing. Yeah. So don't record it. Or if I actually do record it, I love recording everything. Uh, if I do record it, just record the the actual climbing minutes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'll buy that because I'm messing up my data. I like nice data on both Strava, the Garmin app, and now also Training Peaks. I'm overdoing it, I think, with three platforms to stay on top of it. I will uh, <laughs> soon live on one of them. Um, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, cool. No, that's cool. Um, I think I covered most of the questions I have for you today. Um, and I hope that I can um, do it all. At least I'm going to give it a proper attempt to follow more or less the kind of rough week plan we talked about and then increase it for uh, three weeks running, drop it a bit and then start over and I uh, might talk to you again about um, my plan for for the future. I don't know how fit I want to get, just fitter so I can do more rad stuff in the mountains safely. Exactly. That's that. That's the reason we all do it. It is indeed. Um, now it's been great talking to you. Do do we have anything else we should uh, mention? Do you want to mention what you're doing? Um, uh, up there in uh, North America. Yeah, no, no. Uh, I uh, continuing to coach. Uh, so I'm coaching both a, a local cross country ski team for for kids for kids six through eighteen years old. So they're mm-hmm. everything from learning how to ski all the way all the way up to competing nationally and internationally. So that's been really fun. And then um, my wife Allison and I also uh, run a business called Cascade Endurance, where we offer coaching both for individuals and in sort of group formats. Uh, we host a ski mountaineering race here in the North Cascades in Washington uh, and and really just try to provide a lot of different resources about endurance training and, and strength and all the different aspects of getting out in the mountains and having a good time and, and feeling fit doing so. Yeah, uh, it's cool. You made some changes since last time uh, we talked. Uh, what's the name of the race? Uh, the race is, uh, it's in a, it's in a, a ski area called the loop loop. 
so it's it's called the loop. The loop. We've we've actually changed the name almost every year, but it's I think we're currently stuck on the Loop Rondonet race or something along those lines. But it's uh, yeah, people can people can find information about it on our on our website. It's like CascadeEndurance.com. That's that's got nice. that's got links to it. How how long is the race? Uh, so also we, we've kind of changed the format each year. Most, uh, most recently what we've offered is, is a one hour event and then a four hour event. So it's as many laps as you can do in those time frames. Uh, so, you know, people who are racing at the sort of high end for the four hour event are doing close to, uh, 10,000 vertical feet of, of gain. So, mm -hmm. you know, over, 3, over 3000 meters mm -hmm. of gain. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it, it's, it's a pretty, it's not very technical. It's, it's actually incredibly non-technical. So it's really just an endurance event. It's like you skin up, you race down, you just do a bunch of laps, but it's a fun time. It's a good way to get the community together. That sounds cool. Um, if I ever get that fit, uh, you know, uh, maybe I'll come by one day oh. and, uh, attempt something like that i think it would be a fun video to make to just record a bunch of uh, me suffering and uh, regretting myself <laughs> for not having followed the sam's plan better exactly well we'll build i'll put a big kicker in it for you so you can show off the, the skills that you do build really well <laughs> yeah no that sounds really exciting and um i have um for you listening or watching uh, final notes on what i ways or strategies I use for myself as a person that isn't highly disciplined. I do things because I love it and it's the only way for me to do it. So I try to uh, motivate myself. Uh, so I did a six-hour hike. It took seven hours in total with my girlfriend on Sunday. And we hiked a mountain that I really want to ski at the next snowfall. So I could walk up, look into a couloir, like, is it enough snow? Not yet, but it doesn't take that much. I could look at uh, yeah, this beautiful line, and uh, that kind of motivates me. Hiking, just like check out stuff for the future. Like, oh, I could ski this. That that Absolutely. makes it more interesting. And if that's not an option, I also discovered for these longer days that I've uh, been doing. I spent three weeks in the Dolomites in August, and then every two days we'd do five to seven hours of uh, hiking and uh, via ferrata climbing. I don't know what it's called in English. Mm -hmm. When you got wires, you yeah, clip no, in just, with a harness. Yeah, we just call it via ferrata. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, so we maybe hike for two hours to get to it and then do that thing for two hours up and then run down for two hours. Because then, you know, you get to be exposed out in like proper mountain terrain. You can be hundreds of meters up. Uh, which is exciting. And then you climb with you, sports specific, we talked about last time, with their hands and feet, with some luggage. I thought that was a brilliant and exciting way to do some endurance training. And my third level does require more excitement, uh, which I haven't done much this summer once, is to hike uh, a longer way to reach a nice climb. Um, maybe even do a nice multi-pitch up on a proper mountain, then you get uh, quite a lot of endurance to the climb. The climbing itself is not that endurance because you have to move slow and safe compared to the Via Ferrata. The Via Ferrata was just sick that you smack in, smack in, or if it's safe, skip it. So that yeah. are my five cents on motivating anyone who's listening that's a little bit like me. Um, they get easily bored with uh, endurance kind of. Oh, that's that stuff's great. I mean, that's what we all do. You know, I think, 
I think that's the whole point. You want to be able to make training something that you're excited to do. And, you know, being, I, I did the exact same thing. In fact, last weekend I was out uh, running on a ridge line and I used my mapping app on my phone and I would, I would drop a pin at spots where I'd be on the ridge and look down into a couloir and think, oh, that, that's going to be something worth skiing and I'll, I'll, I'll save it for later so I can come back in the winter. Yeah. So say, yeah, I mean, we all do that. I think that's, you know, you want to use your fitness even when you're training to have a good time and, and enjoy being in the mountains. So those are, those are great, great ideas. Yeah. Uh, as a tip for anyone else who likes dropping a, a pen in special nature places, I can recommend fat map. Uh, then you can save a little pin with a little name on it. It's quite good. And you get those 3d mountains. What app did you use for that? Uh, I use Gaia, but yeah, FatMap is good. Uh, Onyx Backcountry is another one around here that's that's been getting used in the states. But there's a number of different really good mapping apps that you can do slope angle shading. You can you know drop pins and add names to things. It's uh, it's, it's amazing the tools we have now to to move in the mountains. Yeah. Now uh, let's leave it on that positive note. That are some exciting ways to. Yeah, use endurance for um, the coming winter and uh, how to stay motivated. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Sam. Um, I'm looking forward to speak to you again in the future and let you know how it's been going. Sounds great, Jens. It's great to see you again, man. And uh, good luck with the fall. I'll be excited to see some shots of you skiing soon. Yeah, soon, man. Soon it's happening. Thanks, man. Goodbye.